Hello everybody and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast, volume 5, issue 268, Flashback. You can always play along with Cane and Rinse volume 6. Our next upcoming episodes are Perfect Dark, Tetris, Double Dragon, Tales of Vesperia and Robotron 2048. You can head to caneandrinse.com for articles, features, reviews and links to our forum, Facebook page and YouTube channel. We mention this regularly, but we're going to keep doing it and we'll make it very clear that there is nothing hidden behind a paywall restriction. We run a Patreon campaign. You can donate to us and everything goes towards the costs of the podcasts from microphone gear to recording software. If you prefer to get something for your money, we do run a t-shirt shop via Spreadshirt. Joining me, your host in this issue, Carl Moon, are the guests. First of all, we've got Mikhail Croder. Hello. Sean O'Brien. Hello. And regular returning guest, Dan Clark. Hi, it's lovely to be back. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Flashback, or Flashback Request for Identity, as it's called in some locations, which I don't particularly like. I much prefer the shorter title, Flashback. <laughs> no. <laughs> so this was a game released in 1992. The developer was Delphine Software International, a very French developer, I think it's fair to say. Um, and we will, for this episode, just to clarify, be briefly talking about the 2013 Flashback HD make by Vector Cell as well. Um, but this is primarily a discussion on the 1992 game. So this was, as many old retro games are, it's now 25 years old, was published by three different publishers, four if you include the iOS or uh, mobile phone releases. Um, In the United States, we had it on the SNES, Mega Drive, Amiga, Jaguar, and PC by US Gold. In Japan, as is often the way, we have Sunsoft, and that was the SNES Mega Drive release. And on the 3DO, it had its own with Interplay, which you know is sort of a bit strange that we had three like that, but such is life. But they were all developed by Delphine Software International. It had the lead designer of Paul Cousset, one of the founding members of Delphine Software International, and a, a key figure there. It had two composers, or two primary composers, uh, Jean Bado and Raphael Gascoigne on who worked specifically on the Amiga release. So this was a multi-format release, a very multi-format release, in fact. Um, in 1992, as we mentioned, it released, and that was solely on the Commodore Amiga. In 1993, it saw a release upon many other, many other formats. We had the Acorn, the Mega Drive slash Genesis, because we've got Sean on the podcast, and it's important <laughs> to mention that. We had the PC with a floppy disk release and the Super Nintendo. In 1994, it followed on further consoles. We had the 3DO, the Apple Mac, the Philips CDI, the greatest of all consoles, FM Towns, PC with a CD release, and Sega CD. A year later, in 1995, it saw a release on the Atari Jaguar, back as a cartridge release. And a lot further on, 14 years later, we had an iOS release in 2009. So they're your releases, or primary releases for this game. I've got a feeling that the panel are primarily going to be on the same format or similar formats. Mikhail, what was your format of choice and year and history with Flashback? Format of choice was uh, the Super Nintendo, since uh, that was the only system I had at the time. And my history is, I think I first saw Flashback covered in Electronic Gaming Monthly, an American magazine that uh, some of the bookstores here had 
Yeah, it was one of those. EGM is uh, is a very weird magazine, uh, or was a very weird magazine compared to many of the other British magazines that I used to read. They had these the their little reviews in the front of the magazine with uh, it's, it was kind of Famitsu style. So you had four editors giving all giving their uh, marks out of ten with just a little description and one single screenshot. And then they had features later later up in the magazines where in the magazine where they sort of laid out uh, what the games were like. It was very strange because they were always like part walkthroughs and part part uh, tips and part pro tips of how to to get through the game. And yeah, so I saw a lot of the game in still screenshots, and that was the, the Genesis uh, slash Mega Drive version. Before that, I had played Another World on the Super Nintendo, borrowed it from a friend of mine, and I was really quite taken with it in some aspects. Uh, really quite struck with it, with the atmosphere and uh, just the the video game equivalent of uh, cinematography that uh, the game displays, but I didn't really get on with it uh, very well because of uh, the uh, sort of the point-and-click uh, instant death sequence, trial and error nature of the, of the whole thing. You know, it was, a, it was still enough to make me interested in Flashback, which I thought looked like a, a sort of a, a sequel or a spiritual sequel, at least to another world. I didn't know that they were, other than coming from the same development house, that they, they weren't really directly related. It, it looked a lot more... From, from that uh, fleshed out feature, it already looked a lot more um, game-like, I would say. A little bit more straightforward action and puzzles. When you think back to another world, it really it felt like a point-and-click uh, adventure transplanted into uh, a side-scroller. So, yeah, like I mentioned already before, the, uh, the instant death sequences. And there was really one way to get through uh, challenges. And uh, if you would do the wrong thing, you would usually just end up dead. And there was also what I really liked about Another World was the uh, the combat, and that uh, makes it its uh, return in a different form in Flashback. But we'll we'll get into into that in the uh, when we speak about the gameplay. In any case, it took a long while for the Super Nintendo port to arrive, uh, but when it did, I uh, immediately bought it and I played it all the way through, and uh, really thought it was a very good game. Uh, but at the time, there were so many other very good games coming out, so I didn't think that much more of it, other than that I thought it was pretty cool with all the cinema sequences. And I, at the time, I was already a little bit um, disappointed compared to Another World that the uh, the cutscenes, the, the rotoscoped cutscenes in between, looked very stuttery on the, on the Super Nintendo. So yeah, they were not nearly as fluid as the ones that we saw in Another World. But other than that, I thought it was a yeah an excellent game. I sold it off when I sold off my Super Nintendo. It uh, it it always stuck with me as just a, a very solid game. And Sean, what about yourself? Well, this came out like a million years ago, so I don't really remember uh, exactly why I picked up Flashback. I, I would assume it was because of the cover it was really. I don't know, it just really caught my eye uh, when I was in the stores, I remember. And I played it on Sega. I do remember that much. Uh, and it was one of my most played games on that system. Like I would play it like multiple times throughout the year. And that's really the only version I've ever played. I'm actually really curious about this iOS version, um, which I, I just looked right now. I couldn't find it on the store. I think it was very short-lived on the store. Really? Huh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I imagine the controls probably weren't great <laughs> yeah yeah especially with some of that precision you need but but yeah so i really my history is is very vague <laughs> but i do i've only ever played it on uh, sega genesis and how about yourself dan um i remember there being quite a lot of hype for this game at the time again coming off the back of another world which for me was one of those games where there's this computer shop that i wish used to walk past on the way home from school and they just had the um the intro as a running demo on the computers at the front 
it just looked like nothing else. This is another world, not flashback at the time. Then I remember the ports for the Mega Drive released in very quick succession. I think they were both in 92 for another world, then flashback. And the somewhat leap in, um, I'm not sure if in style or in, in gameplay design, they just seemed like I'd come straight off the back of another world straight into this game that I'd seen mates play on the Amiga and heard, oh, you get jobs and you've got to go into this game show. And it just seemed like such such depth for for a game of, of those times. And um, so, yeah, I played Another World and then Flashback in quick succession and um, loved it to bits. I think I got it in John Menzies or WH Smith's back when those kind of places sold games. Wow. And it came with them. Um, I picked it there because it came with, do you remember when you used to get a video that used to have like some cheats and then it would have some preview videos of things coming out and yeah. and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I remember the Flashback came with this free video. So that's what sort of tipped my, um, my purchasing of that. Um, and yeah, loved it to bits at the time. And then it's one of those things that I can, uh, it's probably best to say for the end of the show, but um, I appreciate it and love it, but I try and go back and play it every few years and I have to use the codes nowadays. <laughs> yeah, it, I think that's something that we regularly come across um, when we when we go back to sort of older games that they're not always the most friendly or is sometimes your memories sort of sugarcoat <laughs> how a game lives up these days. And it could be the case with Flashback. I think it's certainly the case with Another World. Myself, it's actually very like Dan's, really. Um, we also had a game shop around here. It was Chips. And you'd walk past it, and they used to have the Another World intro scrolling constantly and a big poster uh, up on the walls. And it was the it, it, the, the cover that we all see, the, the eyes with the, with the sort of the metallic purple and sort of green colours going across it, um, being very striking. And with the attention it was getting in the magazines, and I, I would get a lot of magazines even at that, at that age because in 1992 I was eight years old, but I was a very heavy Amiga user thanks to my parents, um, and they would buy me magazines because whilst it was about video games, it was reading, and that was great. So I would read all the articles, and I can't remember if it was like Amiga Format or Amiga Power or something, but they would have very heavy articles, and I remember seeing that it was a follow-up to Another World. Um, not so much in series, but it was the next game. By the developer and another girl uh, another world was a game i enjoyed uh similar to how michael said but the sort of the point and click dragon's lair-esque style of fail die you know go back was the most irritating part of it but you couldn't help but admire the artwork so mm. the, the the idea of playing a game that was of a similar pedigree artistically but with improved core gameplay elements mm. was something I knew I had to play. So it was something that I wanted to play at launch. I needed to play it immediately. I was in love with everything I'd seen in the magazines to that point. And I don't remember when I got it. It must have been in around 1992. It's hard to pinpoint specifics 25 years ago, but I played it on the Amiga. Back then, that was my primary format. Enjoyed it, but it was quite tough with the joystick. You know, I, even with a quality zip stick, it was still troublesome. Yeah, the one button. How does that even work? It <laughs> just It's just very strange. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine. Um, uh, and I never got the chance to sort of finish it on the Amiga. It became a bit too much of a frustration. It was a different experience to a, another world, which was also very tough to complete with the joystick. And it became more of a showcase of how pretty is this before mm -hmm. you know, 
putting something else on and I would later go on to play both the Super Nintendo and the Mega Drive versions at different people's houses to sort of see the difference. Yeah. And it was the Mega Drive version was the one that I would eventually complete. So yeah, I, I got to sort of experience both, but I was definitely caught up in the hype um, for a release that sounds very similar to how Dan saw it with, with his game stores. It was definitely a very big deal in the UK on the magazines, um, getting a lot of hype. They yeah. really did play up that Another World connection at the time. I know in, in years, um, the past few years, they seemed to downplay it almost. But yeah. at the time, I remember a lot of the hype being around, this is the sort of spiritual sequel. So, yeah, I yeah. agree with you there. Yeah, it's sort of one of those things they've clarified a lot further after the time. And it's it's not a sequel. It's only the same developer. But that is definitely not how I remember it when yeah. it was being advertised. Mm. Yeah, not even the same developer, you could say, just the same development yeah. house. <laughs> because yeah, Another, Another was... World was a one-man effort by yeah, it was Eric Chai, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah Chai, was, it was just a one-man one project. And I, before I, I called Flashback, uh, I thought Flash, uh, I said uh, the Flashback was more, appeared more game-like, but that's a very nonsensical way of expressing yeah. it. I think it had more clearly communicated game logic over Another World. Of course, driven by a more seasoned veteran developer who already had a, quite a few yes. titles under his belt. And Chai, Another World was Chai's first uh, effort and his last for a long time. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, it, it, it's strange because it, it's how you speak about gameplay is always a very strange thing because how one person can experience something is very much not how someone else will experience it. Yeah, But Another World is very like Dragon's Lair, which I mentioned earlier, which was yeah. the highly cinematic press at specific times yeah. to sort of progress. And One mistake and you're dead. Kind of, yeah. That's it. And it came across as a very cinematic experience, yet there's probably a strong case that Flashback is the more cinematic game, given its influences in Hollywood. Mm. Um, so it, if we talk about gameplay in terms of more or less cinematic, that again becomes quite lazy. So it's... It, it's sort of an awkward one to describe for anyone who's never actually seen the game running. Mm. Whereas if you have that discussion with someone who, who has, like when I'm talking about Another World being the more cinematic game to play, I'm sure you all understand what I'm getting at compared to the in this five hits and death style of flashback rather than the instant death yeah. specific narrow window button time and pressing um, of another world. Mm. It, it's always hard to find specific sales figures for games this old, but doing some research for it, uh, I did find a document that claimed that it had sold 1.25 million copies. Now, that is a very high amount of copies for a game, even regardless of the numerous formats for that time. But what does back it up is that it was awarded a Guinness record for the most successful French game of all time. Now, Again, that's tenuous because where oh. Ubisoft come into that and, and how French they are yeah. with some Quantic of their Dream, successes. I think too. Uh, Quantic Dream and yeah. stuff like Broken Sword, uh, which was highly French influenced, um, albeit developed in the United Kingdom with some French team uh, directing. And where it stands out is, is kind of strange, but if it was the most successful game, uh, French game, which I assume that's what we have to take it because... Guinness obviously yeah, do their, their research. It's got their award for it. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you've got to take Guinness's record. So there you, there you go. It was the most successful French game of all time. Mm. And 1.25 million copies is a massive success for a 25-year-old game. The development of it is a very strange tale. It was 
a, a US gold, which we mentioned briefly on a Sound of Play on Sound of Play ninety. We were talking about US gold's ability to get movie licenses regarding. I believe it was the Navy SEALs game on that episode. And I know Mikhail was actually on that episode yeah. with me. And we were talking about US Gold. And then it comes up with flashback and it turns out that US Gold were actually given the golden ticket in terms of making a video game for The Godfather. And this was how they saw The Godfather. Because <laughs> Paul <laughs> Paul Cusset, being a very creative mind and highly influenced by cinema, I, I, I I think even that may be underplaying how influenced he was. Uh, big fans. So he wanted to do a retelling of The Godfather in the future <laughs> as, a, as a futuristic tale. And although it clearly never passed, they looked at that and just thought, there's no way we can do this with a, you know, a, a mid 1900s storyline taken into the future. And we, I mean, we all know The Godfather, it's a legendary movie. Yeah, it's probably not what the license holders were looking for. It, I think that's <laughs> safe to say <laughs> that they were probably shocked <laughs> by the concept. Yeah. Um, but perhaps the influences are there. Yeah. Maybe that's why you do the jobs. Uh, you have a series of jobs in one of the levels, which is very different to all the levels. Yeah. Um, in flashback, that could have... And it's also the longest level, so yeah. under development, maybe that is the... Where where they decided to change direction and build around that no longer being a Godfather game, but it's it's sort of one of those strange gaming tales, isn't it? That yeah, this was going to be a Godfather game, and you would never guess it unless no, you no, actually no. knew in development. It's, it's the, so out there. The wildest part, the the wild thing about this tale is that the Godfather is one of the few quintessential movies that I don't associate flashback with. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much everything else is in it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think it's safe to say that anyone who's a fan of 80s and 90s action movies probably had a little something in flashback for them. Yeah. The flashbacks always had this thing, hasn't it, of what's the superior version? And for me, it was always, was it Amiga or was it Mega Drive? Um, It was always between those two. And then in uh, 1994, we had the PC release with the Windows 95 version with the updated graphics and the, quite frankly, disgusting-looking uh, <laughs> FMV sequences, yeah. um, which I did. I actually did see that one. I never got any real time playing it, but I, I found it very unappealing. And it was, which is the best version of Flashback? And I always erroneously thought that the Amiga was the superior version. It was the first one out. It had to be the lead format. Even with, as I've mentioned, playing it with the joystick, that was, for me, the superior version. And in issue 118 of the fabulous Retro Gamer magazine, um, Paul Cousset said in an interview that the best version for me is the Mega Drive version. The game was created for this platform, which means that I was wrong for the better part of two decades, <laughs> and that's incredibly disappointing. <laughs> I think it's open to interpretation, though. Um the game sure. was created for this platform. It could, if, if things are lost in translation, it could well mean, you know, when uh, people use that, oh, if it, it, this game was made for this system, can mean yeah. that someone just feels that it was made for this system. So it's, it's mm-hmm. shone on that system more than it what didn't necessarily wasn't lead, but it's shone. I know we'll never get a Kane and Rince episode, by the way, but I'm interested to know what the development process for the actual Godfather game that US Gold released in 1991 was. Because if this was planned to be what it was meant to be. I imagine it was a rushed old thing because it's a, just a ba- very basic side-scrolling sort of shooty game. So yeah, I know yeah. there'll never be an episode, but 
I bet that was a rushed US Golden House. I think that's probably thing. what they were expecting because we also had similar things as Blues Brothers around that time. Also had a sort of mm. side scroll. Yeah, Red Heat in. and um, yeah, lots of those. Oh, yeah. uh, Red, the Running yeah, Man itself. Red Heat. Yeah, Red Heat was <laughs> a strange one. Well, the most superior, the most superior version definitely was not the Super Nintendo version that I originally played. Yeah, as I mentioned before, the cutscenes were very stuttery in it. Audio was uh, was out of sync in places. Other than, the, other than that, it looked fine, but it's just all these uh, all these little things that add up do add up in the end. And um, for this episode, I replayed uh, the Mega Drive version, and I now think a lot more highly of the game than I ever did. Actually, uh, well, you know, you could argue that the differences are minutia, but still, it, it does make a difference. Yeah, I mean, each version had very slightly differing experiences. I mean, I remember when I played it on the Amiga, it had a zoom feature, which had no use mm. even remotely in the game. It was very strange. And then that didn't appear when I played it on the Mega Drive. And then the Mega Drive version, Conrad wears a white shirt, whereas he wears red in every other release, mm. which I don't think that's ever explained why that was the case. The Super Nintendo version, as was the way, and as sometimes continues to be the way, Nintendo refused many elements of it um, and, and had them changed. So you had a bar where you would be drinking at that had to become a cafe. I mean, only the sign changed, so everyone was still clearly drinking alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, but it now said cafe instead of bar. Uh, the grimly named Death Tower, the Running Man-inspired level, was mm -hmm. renamed to Cyber Tower. Yeah, <laughs> and the police enemies are now adjusted to look more robotical in their design because they were the only supposed human adversaries in the game. So yes, Nintendo was not going to um, let that slide. No, <laughs> the I, I didn't, the route. They really yeah. didn't like that, did they? <laughs> in Japan, morphs were changed from natural skin tones to green skin tones. The Mega CD version and the PC version, the well, the CD-based releases saw the FMV replace it instead of the vector style cutscenes, which personally I found far less appealing um, yeah. as much early FMV is when we look back at it. It's not necessarily the most aesthetically pleasing. The Mega CD version had quote-unquote enhanced audio, uh, a constantly running soundtrack that was remixed, always running in the background, which I've never experienced this version, but that sounds like something I don't want. No, yeah, really. Because yeah, the minimal the sound things, design is part of the the hallmark yeah, of the game, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. That, that that's one of the st standout parts of the audio is that it's very intermittent throughout. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it had full voice support outside of cutscenes. I can take it or leave it. I guess on that kind of thing, it's, unless it's the flashback 2013 style, which wasn't really so awesome. Sauce, um, <laughs> and then. God. <laughs> yeah no. so so we saw very different design concepts across the different releases which is something that over the years has been removed or certainly lessened i mean this was this was a very multi-format release all of them look visually different there's actually a very good comparison out there uh at the moment of recording this on a website called hardcore gaming 101 that actually shows you screenshots of every version in the same location, and I think many people would be surprised at how different a single game can look. And it even has screenshots on there for the FM Towns, which is a Japanese-style PC system. It's just a fascinating insight in, into how something can look visually. These aren't the differences between PS4 and Xbox One uh, titles that Digital Foundry uh, demonstrates. So the, the gameplay, as we've alluded to already on this show, 
probably described as a highly cinematic platform across a series of non-scrolling screens is the more technical term for, for how it plays. It featured multiple moves for the protagonist, uh, running, jumping, rolling, climbing, hanging, and, and shooting. All could be used sort of in a connected sequence, which was pretty impressive at the time. Incredibly fluid animation, mm. even more so than Another World, which was yeah. in its own right breathtaking, um, using a rotoscoping technique, which, for those not aware, is when you film a video and then build your animations over as the frames go by. Those who've seen the original Prince of Persia know that that feels very different from many other 2D platformers. This is the reason why that's the rotoscoping technique. Personally feel that Flashback is the premier version of a rotoscoping on a platforming game, to my tastes at least. It featured a smoothness that didn't exist in another world. And I think that was the big step up there from the frustrations of playing it, as well as far less one hit frame instances of dying and restarting, mm -hmm. um, featuring a, a life system. Uh, it progressed through seven different levels, all of which were influenced heavily by movies in Hollywood. I think the most overriding influence is probably Total Recall. I would say. Mm -hmm. it's, a, or, it's a safe assumption. Yeah. Blade Runner also. Yeah. Blade Runner. Yeah. We see in there, we see Akira with the hover bike, the running man, which influences an entire level, <laughs> the Death Tower level. Um, they live, the incredibly cheesy Rowdy Roddy Piper <laughs> action movie, <laughs> yeah. um, which by putting on a set of sunglasses, they can see the truth. See the aliens hiding yeah. in human flesh. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, and 1984, which is maybe one of the most influential pieces of literature than movies we will see in gaming with different districts and divisions amongst humanity. Video gaming-wise, the obvious influences there being Prince of Persia um, mm -hmm. and the precursor to that, uh, Karateka, which, again, rotoscope in technique-style games. It's safe to say the flashback feels like flashback and is merely influenced by those games it doesn't feel like those games to play this is also this is uh not probably not a direct influence uh, as games go but i always feel that uh, when it comes to the lineage of these types of games uh, people always seem to forget impossible mission on the c64 where the main character not, did not nearly have as many animations as in karateka of prince of persia mm. it did feel like, whenever you go back to the game, it feels like a more primitive uh, version of that style of game with the exact measured jump and uh, the, the little mm. roll and the, run, the running animations. It's interesting that you mentioned that game because I've never played it, mm -hmm. but I spent my youth hearing story <laughs> after story from my father and my uncle yeah. for Galen Time playing together, playing that game. Yeah. Um, and, and quoting the, uh, a line from the sort of introductory level, I believe yeah. it was. And they'd always joke and, and smile about it. And I, I guess maybe that was the influence for them wanting to play Another World than Flashback. Yeah. Um, so it, it absolutely, there's a relevance there to mention in that game. Although I've never played it, I heard countless tales. Yeah. Visually, the game is very striking. It uses a relatively limited color palette, I would say. I wonder if that was tailored towards the Mega Drive. I would think so, because the Mega Drive version looks a little washed out still. It, 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 obviously, it had color issues um, at times, and the Mega Drive version is 
probably the most washed out of the releases. I don't think so. It looks way more crisp than the Super Nintendo version. That one looks uh, mm. proper fuzzy. Well, Super Nintendo always rendered stuff softly, but in terms of color style, in, in mm. terms of color palette, yeah. it always felt like the the Super Nintendo had more on screen than the than the Mega Drive. Yeah, yeah. That's that's for sure. Yeah, the Mega Drive definitely seemed mm. to have a more limited palette, which, as Dan said, that that could well be the case if it was in fact created for that platform. It's very strong blues, very strong greens, browns throughout the game. A lot of grey, which seems weird when you go back, because I don't associate games of this era era being grey. That's I always go straight to the PlayStation Two when I think of grey colours. And yeah, I mean, it uses a vector-based style graphical system. Definitely benefits the animation in the game. Twenty-five years later, it looks breathtakingly beautiful still. And this isn't the uh, HD remaster. It's not the, certainly not the 2013 release. I'm talking the 1992-1993 releases are still beautiful-looking games in the way that, that many others that followed, particularly with the leap to 3D, certainly don't. Yeah, there's 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 something to be said too for like just the the actual art direction. Like, even though it's clear that it's taking inspiration from lots of films, every individual level and almost like every individual screen is memorable in a way. Like, I can I can picture when I was playing back through it for the show or for this podcast. Like every time I got to a new scene, I was like, oh, I remember that. I remember that. Like it was yeah, all just yeah. really memorable. And and I had the exact same uh, same reaction. Yeah. Yeah, and each level being like really distinct from each other too. Like that's another thing that's uh, I think also comes from that kind of generation of games where you know they really focus on levels being different from each other. What I found so striking about Come Back to Earth in the game is mm-hmm. the the design of the place. It looks very inspired by uh, Mobius's uh, artwork. Like the the strange shaped columns and the, and the and the shapes in it. Absolutely, and I mean it. That that art style is something that I've always gravitated towards. I mean, anyone who's seen me on social media over the last eight or so years has known that I used a picture and a, a right, Twitter yeah, yeah. header <laughs> of another world. Yeah, um, and and the, when when the when another world was released iOS, the amount of people that would message me saying your game's been released on iOS, <laughs> it's on the App Store kind mm. of thing would always make me laugh yeah. because that was the that was the visual association with myself because yeah. um, it's so striking, it's immediately recognisable. And as Sean said, even twenty five years on, you can go and go back to a level that you may not have been able to recall until you see it mm. and immediately it all comes back. You're like, I remember this. Yeah. I remember this bit. I remember that bit. And it's that care that's taken frame after frame drawing it that is sometimes lost with the way that games are generated now, particularly with 3D. And I like to uh, draw a comparison to the classic Disney movies, the the real hand-drawn 2D classics, Snow White, Pinocchio, Cinderella, etc. And you compare it and you say Frozen and and... Toy Story, etc., all, all wonderful films. You can't deny that they're not great films, but are they as visually appealing to me as the old 2D hand-drawn ones? No, mm-hmm. they're not, because I feel like frame by frame, those films are so much more interesting, and that carries over to this style of game as well, where any level that you're on screen at that time will have a, an interesting and probably unique bit of art to it that isn't elsewhere, mm-hmm. which is always stunning. Yeah, it's almost like every screen's a puzzle as well, but it's sort it of is. interconnected yeah. with the others. Like rolling off screen will sometimes affect what goes on on a, a different screen, but mm-hmm. yeah. they can be uh, seen as yeah, like self-designed little chunks of gameplay. 
Yeah, it's kind of telling that I almost did not feel the need to replay this game for the podcast uh, <laughs> since yeah. it was so. It, it's a game that I played in '94 or '95, and it was still so freshly etched into my memories, which is. Uh, I feel quite significant in uh, how well this game has held up. In regards to the audiovisual style of Flashback, we have some feedback from um, some correspondence from Marco, which was left on the forums. Marco said, When I saw it was being covered by Caden Rince, I was delighted. It evokes so many memories for me from that time. The wonderful rotoscope animation, the shameless running man and total recall plot moments and pace and settings, unlike the majority of games I was playing. You can run and you have a gun and you will have to do both. But my memory was that of it being almost an adventure game where the puzzles require forward planning and precise timing. As a youth, timing wasn't a problem. Thinking ahead and learning from my errors, more so. Dying came fast and frequently, but I did not care. I had to see what came next and luckily I was, and still am, as stubborn as I was careless. Coming back to Flashback Today was surprising in several ways. Visually, it looks just as gorgeous as it did to me then. Conrad's movements are just plain cool. That said, it just isn't for me anymore. I can't place what it is about the game that I don't click with. All the niggles that annoy me now were present then. Pressing up to jump, not being able to shoot the guy I've snuck up on because our sprites overlap, and starting at the beginning of a level after a pulley time jump, none of these are game breakers for me, and I suspect I relished this type of play at the time. I'm also keenly aware I've spent as much, if not more, time playing and dying in a multitude of modern games. At the risk of sounding like I'm saying it's not you, it's me, Flashback was important to me in my younger days, and I think I'll always remember it fondly. It is probably still a great game. I'm glad I played it, and no, from what I played again, it hasn't changed, but I have. I think Marco's saying that it's still visually a stunning game, which I absolutely agree with. Uh, perhaps not the easiest game to go back to now. Um, now, that wouldn't be the first time that this has been the case, that we've gone back to a game on Cain and Rince, and we all have positive things to say about it, or at least many positive things to say about a title, and then find it hard to recommend because it's not necessarily the easiest to play, and we can all sort of forgive it because we're all reliving what we played in our youth a little bit. I think the one criticism all of us would perhaps label at it now would be a control. It takes adjusting, definitely, uh, for a while, but uh, I was surprised at how well I got into it while replaying it. Again, we, we, I'll draw comparisons to Another World. What uh, this game has over Another World is that it has, it has a very strong, strongly communicated logic to it. Sure, there, the animations and the, the spacing that goes with them in the levels takes some, take some time to get used to it. But once you do, it's hard, for me at least, to ever blame the controls uh, for, for dying or for shortcoming because I know what, what's expected of me and what I'm, uh, what I'm supposed to do. The only time I would uh, uh, place the blame outside of myself is because one of the buttons of my Mega Drive controller isn't very responsive anymore, but uh, that's about it. I think the thing that would get me personally when I go back to playing Flashback is the multitude of different jump styles that I would find frustrating. The ability that you've got a standing jump to climb, which is fairly straightforward. Yeah. You've, you've got a moving jump, you've got a running jump, mm. and then you've got a running long jump, which requires that you let go of your movement as you're doing it mm. um, and, and getting them all right, particularly the latter one, if you don't necessarily know the technique, means that there's a specific part in the game that you can't actually progress from that specifically requires that running long jump. Um, they look beautiful. 
Um, but I would find that the issues I have with jumping were a little more polished than they were in another world, but it was a problem in another world. It was a problem at times in Prince of Persia. And this style of platforming was something that I would always, that, that would always be the shortfall for me. Now, it was forgivable. I would still say I could forgive it now because of how important the game is to me and how I played it then. And I know that it can be done, I think is also part. But maybe if I was coming to it new, I just couldn't. That, uh, that's where I'm coming from. Like, if I was to recommend it to someone, knowing that they were going to have problems with the platforming. Yeah, you almost need to think half a second ahead of yourself to be able to get to grips with it, which I suppose, yeah, isn't a skill that we're all sort of used to nowadays. Yeah. In the first level, I was sure enough, I was bumbling around, fumbling around, and uh, just, uh, you know, dying more times than I should have. Yeah. Um, but there's something that really argues in favor of the the controls and the mechanics for me, and that it's... Within its constraints, it has quite a, a little bit of freedom hidden in it. For example, there are so many uh, animations that, while they run their course, allow you to draw your gun while you're uh, performing them, for example. So you come out of a roll, gun drawn. You, mm. you, you cl- climb up on a, a ledge or you drop down, draw your gun, and you're, you're ready to fire as soon as you're, uh, you touch ground, for example. And I think that's really... Really cool. Uh, I was quite in awe when I discovered it yeah. this time playing around, and it makes it makes you feel cool, and it makes the character look cool uh, while doing it when you uh, when you have mastered the controls. So sure, there's there's a learning curve, but there's something really strong uh, to argue in favor of this control scheme yeah. and no, the mechanics. There's definitely there's definitely a specific timing to everything too. Like, yeah, I'd say about halfway through the game, you you know to kind of if you're running, let go of the controls or let go of the direction. A couple exactly. seconds before you, you actually want to stop because he's going to have that extra step or two to where, especially on a ledge, he'll like, you know, do that funny little, whoa, like kind of swinging his arms kind of thing on the, on the end of a ledge. I mean, that, that's the that's the key, isn't it? Because we're running with rotosco- uh, rotoscoping um, and, and that style of animation. Yeah. yeah. There's that sense of, um, I guess, realism. Realism is a strange term to use yeah. for well, no, a game I'm like this. But because yeah. the, anim- the animations are based on the reality of someone actually performing them. Yeah, actual it physics. It gives them right. weight. It gives them a sense of weight. Now, we live in an era where games run in 60 frames a second and you'll have multiple windows in that to be able to snap out of an animation into something else for pinpoint jumping. Now, that's brilliant for a game like Super Meat Boy or Mario Brothers where those reactions are core to the experience of playing them. But because you can't do it in this, you've got to have the momentum and the weight of your character continue before you jump is what gives this the visual style when you're watching it be played. Mm-hmm. So the frustrations are there for when you're trying to land an accurate platform jump. But when you're doing, as Mikhail said, the the roll and drawing your gun, which is something you will be doing a lot because you can roll through enemies away, mm-hmm. turn, shoot, and you'll sort of repeat that to take down enemies, is something that is buttery smooth and probably something we didn't really see that much of, buttery smooth animations. That is human style animations for a long time, mm. long time after. We have some comments again left by the community on the forums regarding primarily the controls. Um, it's definitely something that sticks in people's memories. <laughs> the first one up is Jedi Sniv, who said, I first played this on the SNES shortly after release at around 11 years old. I'd played Another World briefly before and found it mesmerizing but utterly impenetrable. But thought I'd have more luck with this game. 
The graphics were amazing for the time, but I remember trying to come to grips with the controls for the first few hours and thinking that I'd made a big mistake in my semi-annual game purchase. I persevered because at the time I had no other choice, but also because the game was so beautiful and mysterious I had to see where it went next. I eventually beat the game with the help of a friend as we swapped the game and traded off levels and later went back to play through everything myself. The controls are obtuse, but with training you can become something approaching fluid. My strongest memories of the game are the subway station, which I thought was very advanced for the time. It made the place seem, feel somewhat real in my child mind. The final level I remember as being a total slog, with the real kicker being the escape from the level was an elevator that was hidden behind some slimy stuff. That took some working out. <laughs> in a way, these games like Flashback and Another World were a kind of developmental cul-de-sac. It's hard to see the influences of this on many games we play now. The intentionally sluggish and obtuse controls keep the game inaccessible to many, and it feels the industry moved towards fluidity and player agency in platforming games. I still have fond memories of it now, but I don't know if I'd have the patience. A lot of the points that we've just made were made in the final paragraph there. Um, it's strange because I wouldn't have said that the industry moved towards more fluidity because the fluidity is what shines in this game. I think mm. maybe precision and in sort of in the moment platforming. Um, is something that definitely came more prominent uh, in games now. But it's definitely a Direct fluid. response over fluidity or realism animation, in animation, yeah. probably. Yeah, mm. taking priority over that. Less considered and deliberate is how it kind of got over the years, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Playing out an animation cycle is always a tricky thing. Now, in this game, it sort of works because it adds, again, it was it was the accurate animation of a person. But we we went into an era shortly after this of 3D-based lightly motion captured full animation sequences before moving on to another that caused endless problems um, in games, particularly sports games where you had to finish a very set animation sequence before moving and it, and that in effect did affect the fluidity of those games. It was almost a sales point of FIFA by a certain point was we've stopped, we've been, we've been able to stop animations yeah. in the middle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's actually very true. Yeah, the the animations can now split off into other animations, and that they were now being hand tweaked again. Not everything was motion captured entirely. Um, yeah, so it, when we went into three D, we did encounter a lot of these problems for a long time. In fact, that that could be quite quickly avoided in a two D style game. I mean, this, this game, I, I certainly would never level at it that it lacked fluidity, but it definitely lacked a sense of responsiveness but as dan said it was deliberate you know there was that deliberate sense in there um and another point there is that many of us would have been young playing these games it certainly happened to me in my youth that i would get a game purchased for me or i would save up my pocket money and i knew i wouldn't be getting another one for several months and it could be incredibly difficult incredibly frustrating but i knew i had to sort of battle on through it because it was a long time till my next one it's not like now where you have a Steam sale and a full exactly. library and you try something out and it's like, oh, this is, I don't get on with this. This is not for me, you know, let's try yeah. something else. So, yeah. Yeah, we, li we live in a whole other world of pain where we've got too many games and we can't decide which one to play, so we watch TV Another instead. world indeed. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we've got some more community feedback from Sky Blue Faz. Skyboo Flash says, I came to play Flashback a few years after the initial release. It totally passed me by for some reason, but was recommended by a school friend, and I picked it up for the Mega Drive and was blown away. I remember it being the first game that I felt was really set in a sort of living world, and whilst I found the animations gave the controls an awkward feel to begin with, it was undeniably cool looking. 
The shooting was great. It was refreshing not to see the bullet leaving the gun and crossing the screen. It made it feel more real. I remember being blown away that you could get a job in the game as well for some reason. It's also the first game I remember with proper cutscenes. Frustratingly, I couldn't finish the game because I got stuck at the end and lost the will to live with it. It was not perfect, but it felt groundbreaking at the time. An important point to mention would be the cutscenes. Um, this was not something we commonly had in games. Um, they weren't unheard of. Mm-hmm. We we had sort of intro, intros to games, um, even stuff like Street Fighter in the, in the arcades would have sort of intros and, and sort of outros and, and, and the like. But for a story that was being told throughout an entire game to keep interrupting with, with cutscenes mm-hmm. was fairly novel. Now, mm-hmm. I can't say categorically that Flashback was the first, and it almost certainly wasn't because there were so many yeah. games. But I think it was probably safe to say it's one of the first on the major formats like the Super Nintendo or Mega Drive that were heavily cons- uh, that were heavily cartridge based. Uh, in fact, that was one of the advertising slogans for the game: mm-hmm. so a CD-ROM and a cartridge. Yeah, yeah, yes, it was CD-ROM and a cartridge. And it's it you know the, the cutscenes on the cartridge were certainly a big part of it standing out from the crowd as well as you know the other things they had in its favor. Now, yeah, the story was pretty important to the game. Something something I enjoyed. I was a, a huge fan of the movies of which this was aping and utilizing for good or bad. You know, what we might say about the likes of Total Recall and The Running Man, they're the kind of movies that when they're on on a Saturday night, I'll watch them to the end. They're not, they're not great, but I'm going to enjoy them every single time. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't aware that this game was influenced by them until I was playing it. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. had seen those movies at the time. Because it starts out very mysteriously. You just wake up in the jungle, your character, uh, Conrad Behart, without uh, having any notion of who he is and why he's there. And then, the you know, you start picking up the plot threads from there on out. And that's where all the, uh, when, when all the movie influences mm-hmm. become clear to you. That's it. And, and it wasn't unusual for games of this era to just drop you into the game. What was unusual was that this game did it when another world had an intro. Yeah. We were an era where we could sort of forgive that. The story was secondary or even tertiary in many mm-hmm. game experiences and we'd progress. And the fact that this would open up with cutscenes and storytelling made it all the more fascinating to me at the time. I mean, I was nine years old by the time I was playing it on the Mega Drive. Yeah. Um, and I hadn't experienced this before. So when I was playing platform games like Prince of Persia, it didn't really matter that much. I think the key thing here is that for point-and-click adventures, graphic adventures, and of course text adventures, that that wasn't really a thing. It was was really new for action games to have this sort of narrative, strong strong overriding narrative, and uh, and these cutscenes. Like uh, me and Sean uh, and with Josh in the Ninja Gaiden episode, we... Briefly talked about the uh, NES uh, Ninja Gaiden and its uh, revolutionary cutscenes at the time, and the main de- and the ma- that was f- quite a few years before uh, Another World and uh, a Flashback, of course. But the main difference with Flashback and Another World is these are actually fully animated cutscenes instead of yes. stills with a uh, with a little bit of uh, animation going on in them. Mm. Yeah, I should have made it clear that, that that's what I meant by the the, the animation, uh, the the cutscenes. Yeah throughout as the storytelling that there weren't still pictures yeah um which, which obviously we had had before we'd had running on the uh, nes yeah. master system and, and systems like that the big thing was that now you started seeing this in action games rather than uh your typical adventure games that that had uh, mm. more and more cutscenes and narrative going on an adventure game is almost uh, an entire cutscene if you think about it in 
a kind of abstract way. And I wonder if Delphine coming off the back of point and click development prior to this, and then the sort of the the rise of popularity of consoles led them to sort of meld their previous experience with the action games that they'd need to make for a controller because a point and click just doesn't work with a pad. I definitely think so. It's I I feel in both Another World and, and Flashback the uh, the influence of point and click adventures is very strong and, and uh, tangible. I think it definitely goes somewhere to improving their ability to tell the story. In when we we had some really good point and click games in the early nineties that were starting to tell really in depth stories, and and we had we had other games in various other genres. We had role playing games, the likes of Eye of the Beholder, that were these. Dungeons and Dragons inspired sprawling tales, mm. but for a game that was a simple two D platformer, we already hacked to the likes of Navy Seals and Godfather and, and Blues Brothers as the likes that had a movie license, but there were simple platforming games, and there may as well have been no story told other than you know. I always think back to the Blues Brothers game, and you had the two recognizable characters, and that was it. You were collecting, <laughs> you know, vinyls. It was it was a very strange way of do movie tie-ins and and although this was more of a movie tie-in than any of them without actually being tied down to a single license and they were able to sort of really expand on the story that they wanted to tell and they did it consistently throughout in a way that games weren't doing or they certainly weren't doing it consistently and that cinematic influence uh, from Hollywood definitely came into play in that regard and perhaps coming from point and click development allowed them to sort of slow things down a little bit. Not everything is as fast and as frantic and action-packed as it needs to be. You you can go at your own pace and take the puzzles on as need be and, and strategize how to take out the enemies. Uh, and by backing that with a story, it certainly became an experience that I hadn't played anything like that before. And, it, and that's where it really started to feel different from mm-hmm. another world. We discussed already that in the first uh, stage here, basically... Waking up in the jungle, trying to stay alive, trying to find your way out. And you meet this guy who's mortally injured and needs a teleporter to uh, teleport back to the, a city called New Washington. And in the end, you also get there. Before that, you, you pick up a holocube, right? That yeah. uh, con- contains a message of Conrad B. Hart to himself, saying that he's uh, lost his memory and he need to, uh, needs to connect with his friend Ian in New Washington. So from there on out, when, uh, when he reaches uh, New Washington, which is a city that's underground, that's where stage two begins. And that's uh, quite a long stage. It's a very long stage. It's like a third of the whole game yeah. in one stage for seven levels. The one point where an imbalance in level length comes into play. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of elements of games outstaying their welcome, so when one level feels so much longer than other ones around it, it stands out quite negatively for me. When I play Flashback, it's the level that I don't want to play the most. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, but- <laughs> and It has some great elements, but it's the one that I don't want to play, and it's a shame that it's the second one, because I like a consistency through my levels. And the fact that the change quite dramatically in this game. Mm-hmm. I remember at the time when I was playing it for the first time, I wanted to see what was next. Right. That, that's how I play a lot of games, is I like what I've seen so far, but I can't wait to see where it goes. And when I feel like it starts to drag its heels a little... I understand that, because you're basically... Yeah, I understand where you're, where you're, uh, where you're coming from, because you're, you're basically... You're being told to grind for money to get some false, right, yeah. uh, false ideas yeah. so you can join the, the Death Towers uh, game show. The objectives you get, I find quite fun and varied to carry out, actually. Yeah, this whole level is 
very silly, like from the very <laughs> second you get there. So you got to get these false papers, and then so they they say you got to go to the um the job center and get a, a working permit. <laughs> yeah, and then you get there, and I don't know why they do this, but like you get there and there's three people sitting in a row, like three <laughs> and tellers, and they're like, you go to the first a, one, he's like. Yeah. Right, yeah, and it's, nope, it's not me. Go to the next one. No, it's not me. Go to the next one. It's such a weird <laughs> sequence. And then, and then the jobs you get are so crazy for someone who just got a working permit. Like, here's a bomb that's gonna blow up in ninety seconds. <laughs> go yeah. put in this. Uh, go put this, this in the right um, whatever document. Or yeah, the circuit, the circuit board. Yeah, right, circuit board. Yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's so crazy, and and that yeah. kind of got me through the tedium of it. It was just how ludicrous each of these things were to. To ask some random person who just got the job, like the bureaucratic desk sequence really stands out. It almost felt like uh, the, the the game's director Quise had something to say about bureaucracy. Sure, Maybe he had, yeah. he had a he had a particularly nasty encounter uh, encounter <laughs> at a at a government right. agent, and he just put yeah. that in the game as a, sort of a satire kind of thing. It feels yeah. a bit uh, a bit a bit would be Kafka Kafka esque. <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoy the sort of the wacky, wild nature of the missions because it's quite offset to the almost, there's a serious tone that's almost been set coming into this level. Sure, yeah. That, you know, you, you've got the message from yourself and then you've got to progress through and then you get these crazy, only in science fiction sort of objectives. Mm -hmm. And yeah. again, it really leads back to Total Recall and the Running yeah. Man being so yeah. unbelievably cheesy and right. sort of nonsensical that you can't help but smile at these at these elements yeah there's the blade runner mission where you have to show a photograph around to, mm -hmm. to discover the identity of a replicant L literally called a replicant yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah. i didn't remember uh, them being actually called replicants as well maybe that yeah, was changed in the super either. nintendo yeah. version so but definitely they were called replicants in the, in the mega drive version <laughs> <laughs> See, this would be the level that I always do go back to. So, I, yeah, I just find mm. it fascinating that we've got totally um, sort of polarized views on that. Yeah. I always see it as the, the meat of the game is this section here. And um, it's the one yeah. that I can go back and just put in the code and just play this level and mm. feel like I've played enough of flashback for me to, to have felt. If it was a level that was split in two via some creative event that, that definitely divided mm. them, it would be two levels I would really like yeah. hmm. rather than one level that feels too long. And it's not the things that you do in the level that I don't enjoy. It's just that I feel that it takes too long before moving to the next part. Yeah. Mm. It's sort of a strange way yeah. of, of feeling about the game, but I'm very much from the point of view that you can have too much of a good thing. Yeah. Sure. And I wonder if it would have helped if they were to splash some story in between each job. Like you literally just go yes. from job to job to job to job. And that's it's like what, five altogether, I think. Mm. And you don't get any story yeah. until you get to the death tower so split that mission into parts yeah. a to e would have been a, a, a nicer way to do it with the star yeah, i do have to say with a side with dan uh in saying that this is probably the part the part uh, when i played the game back in the days where it started to make the biggest impression on me when i when i was uh actually quite quite impressed one of the pieces of community feedback uh, already mentioned the tube system like going to from mm -hmm. uh, from area yeah. to area and uh uh, the sections of New Washington of the city being uh, named after continents of uh, on Earth. There are things in it that are narrative in uh, in nature without even using the cutscenes in it. For example, when you uh, first meet Ian uh, in the in the 
lower parts of the city. There's these two two cops uh, in this place, and as soon as you open the door, they start firing at you. And it's never really explained why the police is after you in the game. And somehow I don't I don't find that a, a weakness or a shortcoming. It's it's something where I feel like you know I start to fill out the blanks by myself. Like uh, oh you know maybe the uh, the aliens have infiltrated the police, for example. And it's uh, it's all these little bits and pieces that kind of add to the intrigue of the game game rather than uh, take away from it. Yeah, I think if you can use your imagination to sort of connect the dots that are there, I mean, they're not necessarily tenuously linked dots either, as they were in many games. And we'd all use our imagination to connect the dots on sure. the games that were far wilder than yeah. this. You could, you could come up with like a, a sort of something that wasn't too unreasonable that, you know, in the in the regards that maybe they did infiltrate the police and they know you because it could be a hive mind or and you know that and all these kinds of things, uh, tricks that you can play in your own mind to tell further elements of the story that aren't necessarily that. Yeah. So and from there on out, uh, you finally get the money together, the ludicrous sum, sum of money to get papers and uh, and join join Death Tower, which is really interesting when you uh, when you first enter it because. I really like uh, again how striking the design of the interior of the Death Tower is, uh, and mm-hmm. then there's the spotlights and the cameras and everything. And at first, I was thinking the atmosphere is more like that of a quiet film or TV studio rather than you're you don't feel like you're in the middle of a celebratory game show. It's not something like Smash TV, which is <laughs> right, exuberant yeah. and loud, and there's a, yeah. a TV show host sh- uh, shouting, you know, big money, big prizes in your face. It's almost as if you're really, you are with Conrad. And of course you won't hear the play-by-play commentary going on in the show because you you are entering the show from his perspective and it's it's quiet on the set, except, except for pieces of music when things start getting tense. Yeah, it's, it's a really striking difference between internal, or just a really striking tonal shift between yeah. the level previously where you're, like you were just saying, you know, just really silly job simulator, and then yeah. uh, out of nowhere, you're like fighting for your life on this for your really life like against... dark and like '80s inspired looking like neon everywhere kind of stuff. It just it's a really I don't know. It kind of creeped me out a little. Yeah, <laughs> and it's the the running man part of the show, and sure, like yeah. like I said before, it's it wasn't the first time we saw the setting in a game because Smash TV right. preceded mm-hmm. it, yeah. but yeah. it's striking nonetheless and uh, memorable all in its own right. It gets neon just yeah. so right as well, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, it's it's very visually appealing, and it, it's that iconic '80s science fiction. Which '80s science fiction is the best science fiction, yeah. <laughs> uh, in my opinion? Um, and and yeah, it's it's that sort of the gritty, the greys, and the blacks contrasted by these beautiful neons. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, just enough that it doesn't detract, but it makes you grounded exactly where you are. It feels so on point. I can only imagine a team of artists would go sort of slide by slide looking at it and going, well, maybe we could tweak this. I don't think that's quite right. And then that's beautiful. We'll stick with that style. And really being incredibly picky over each and every section in that game. Uh, and and I, I, that's why perhaps 25 years, I mean, a quarter of a century since it came out, it still holds up yeah. as, as a reference point for artistic styles. Yeah. And and the, you you hit on something there as well, which is why I enjoyed my second playthrough uh, this time around so much is just how much I enjoyed how the challenges on each screen were laid out and trying to crack them and get through without uh, suffering any damage. 
and mm. lured in in the Death Tower sequence, it's for example trying to lure the replicants into landmines and stuff like that. It's, right, it's yeah. really fun. Mm. What's also interesting about Death Tower, it feels like incredibly daunting at fast because you're only on floor seven, and it's a very long floor that loops uh, loops around itself. Then you mm. move on to fl- to floor six, and it's a little bit shorter. And floor five is even shorter, so it's kind of like a, a pyramid thing almost. Where you, yeah. uh, mm. when you reach the top, it be- you know when you think you're halfway there, you're almost near the end, uh, actually. And then when you get there, yeah, you get handed your your flight tickets. Uh, uh, your incredibly expensive uh, and you head off to planet earth to get back and try to unravel the alien conspiracy and this is where uh it basically picks up from death tower because there is no more job uh, sections or anything like that it's just straight up straight up action and puzzling uh, all the way yeah. to the end of the game basically playing it through the second time around i found it like significantly more difficult than the levels leading up to it like i don't know i think there's a lot more sequences here that ha- what can like you can accidentally fall to your death the police is different more difficult to, uh, to defeat than the mm. replicants are the replicants you can you easily learn how to uh, deal with them uh right. when you have, yeah. you have enough space you you notice that they activate their teleportation thing sure. yeah. and um uh, the the key thing is there to already roll towards them when they do right. so so they overshoot mm-hmm. you and they can't co- uh, get close to you and start pistol whipping you right. so you create more distance again and start firing at them because they're not they're not very quick on the draw they're more dangerous when they're up close to you mm-hmm. but the police is very dangerous from a distance and uh you have to really start using your shield at this point force your, your, right. for, your yeah. force field and that's something i also really loved about uh the combat uh the use the force field it uh harkens back a little bit to what i loved most mechanics wise about another world again where you also had uh, a force field uh, with your your laser gun which you activated uh, by uh pressing the shot button and charge it charge it up to create a force field in front of you in another world there was still not really the one hit death uh thing in the combat because uh usually aliens when they would shoot at you they would shoot miss you twice before they would hit you and instantly kill you yeah, here you would have the, the force field that stayed active for a very short time, so you need to keep on pressing it to keep the buttons out. And what I love so much about it back then is that at this time I already started borrowing a lot of my uncle's uh, sci-fi novels, and I was reading through uh, Frank Herbert's Dune, and there's a, Frank Herbert describes this uh, sort of infantry warfare in, uh, in his novel. Everybody, every soldier in his universe, basically, uh, and, and civilians even, wear force fields that stop projectiles from, from coming through in order to prevent assassinations. And it's exactly the sort of thing that reminded me of it, where, you know, people could pass through your force field and uh, hit you with, uh, with slow-moving attacks, but uh, it would stop projectiles. And with the police, you really have to use your force field with enemies before that the mutants and the replicants yeah. it wasn't really necessary but you constantly need to keep up that barrier because they will they're very quick on the draw they'll, they'll hover in the air and keep uh, keep shooting at you it is a puzzle within itself to, to yeah to defeat any one of them every time one's on the screen mm-hmm. you have to totally think your surroundings and uh stay one step ahead the whole time yeah and it's not just them then the little drone uh things with the with the caterpillar tracks come to watch you as well oh, yeah. come from you from behind with the with the with the with the shocking prods and uh <laughs> yeah. yeah there's the there's the flying pots of course that will uh you know you, you can stay out of their, their uh attack range by just ducking but that's not always a deal when you're dealing with the police yeah that is the most frustrating little element is when you have the little floating drones going around <laughs> yeah um 
They can yeah. just ruin like everything could be going so right until they arrive, right. and then your whole pattern is broke yeah. because yeah. You, you 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 can't get the technique to take everything yeah. else out. Um, and if there's more than one on the screen, then yeah, it's tough. You you need yeah. you need to you yeah. need to. He's not tearing your hair out. What I found uh, the, uh, the most effective way of dealing with uh, with them was uh, create more distance than you would think you need. So instead yeah. of rolling once <laughs> yeah. and getting up and firing, roll roll twice in one direction and then get yeah. up. So you would have enough distance between them. I would find that sometimes fighting them was a bit inconsistent if you would get like right up close quarters with them because like I felt like sometimes you could punch them and sometimes you couldn't for seemingly arbitrary reasons like I, I i don't know but yeah i agree generally fighting them was just the worst yeah it's almost like a stun lock sort of thing i think when you yeah, hit that when yeah. they when you hit them in a in a certain timing then they won't be yeah, able to uh, sh- to shock you to the other but if you don't hit them at that specific time they will already have fired off the electric charge right. and, uh, and yeah. hit you instead yeah on planet Earth, you uh, eventually uh, grab a taxi cab, uh, a flying uh, Blade Runner-esque uh, taxi, and you, uh, yeah. there's a quick cutscene <laughs> of where you uh, take off and uh, and uh, take a trip uh, through the city by air. What city do you think this uh, is meant to portray on Earth, by the way, since we're on planet Earth? Mega City 1. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think it's a, a future uh, version of Paris because of the... Promenade hmm. type section, you see, uh, uh, backgrounds hmm. you see in, in sections with the with the lampposts. That would make sense, um, especially. Probably, yeah, them being that would make in sense. France, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I never really thought. I never really thought about where it was supposed to be, other than Earth. All of Earth in the future is the same. <laughs> yeah, mega, just mega city Earth. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> Yeah. So then afterwards, you uh, you reach this dodgy nightclub called Par- Club Paradise, and you find the uh, why and how Conrad decides to to hit up that spot is not entirely clear, but uh, I'm, I'm sure he must have had some information. So you find a secret entrance, and then uh, you you get through some secret area with uh, which has. Uh, cargo stored away in it and you crawl into a ventilation shaft and uh, listen in on the uh, on the aliens uh, discussing their uh, devious devious plot and plans and then drop through a uh, ventilation shaft and they'll they'll catch you again and from there on out you're thrown in jail and you there's an escape uh, sequence uh, which is maybe one of the hardest parts in the game where you also there's a lot of traps around a lot of flying drones and there's this uh, this one bit with a moving uh, death trap that, uh, that follows you across the screen. <laughs> it's a mad rush till the end, and you eventually end up with a teleporter, right? And then you teleport to the mm-hmm. uh, alien's home planet, where you uh, seek out the uh, the core of the planet, the living core of the planet, and, uh, and destroy it and get away. The moments right before you get the teleporter, for me, the most frustrating to play in the game, uh, in terms of a um, difficulty spike. The, the traps, the sort of instant deaths, the, mm, the floating mm-hmm. drones, it becomes, for lack of a better term, a chore mm. almost to play this level. And when when you get the teleporter, it does change things yeah. up a bit. It changes the way that you can play, which is always nice. But I like that a lot, how forward thinking that was, where you can just throw the teleporter through a certain yeah. section and just teleport mm-hmm. there, even that down uh, onto other screens. That totally changes the whole dynamic of the game. Once you understand that you can, in fact, do that, plays an entirely different game from that point and it's very refreshing because the moment before it is the most frustrating as a difficulty spike Mm -hmm. which is probably intentional from a design perspective to go from something that 
is so frustrating that you look for an alternative to it. So <laughs> being able to throw your teleporter off screen <laughs> and, and utilize it that way is, is really, really interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's such a cool upgrade in a way from like the only, the only other thing you throw in the game is just a rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you go from throwing a rock to a thing that will teleport your entire body. Like it's just, it's a really neat. Upgrade. Yeah, the rock was really funny, fun to use in the first stage as well <laughs> to distract uh, mutants with and let them walk into their own traps. But yeah, the, <laughs> but the, the teleporter is a whole different thing, yeah. You've now made me want to go back and do a new game plus as if you could have the teleporter all the way through just to see oh, what <laughs> interesting yeah, awesome. yeah. stuff you could come up with. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the kind of stuff that I would have sort of really enjoyed. That whole, you know, the, the Symphony of the Night upside down castle mm-hmm. sort yeah. of. Change it up. You've got everything now. Go crazy, you know. See how it can really be altered, and and um, yeah, it seems strange to say if it was redone now because it was only four years ago we had the monstrosity that was the <sighs> 2013 release, and we've also had people HD flashback up, and it's something I would love to see mm-hmm. a modern tweaking of flashback, but very traditional style. Yeah. I mean, um, the the one game that was maybe most influenced by flashback afterwards, and and this is this is kind of crazy because we've had so much feedback on, we've got so many points that we discussed: the incredible art design, the beautiful music, the multiple releases, the most successful French game of all time, over a million copies sold, and it's for me, it's direct influence as a result was Abe's Odyssey. Yeah, mm-hmm. from there we sort of went three D, and whilst it may have been an influence or a reference point in design. We no longer saw this style of yeah. game so openly or so clearly. Um, and you know, Abe's Odyssey followed it, and it obviously was a great smash hit on the Sony PlayStation, and it looked wonderful, used very similar techniques to flashback. And then we had um, Abe's Odyssey New and Tasty, which we we actually covered uh, Abe's Odyssey in issue 198 mm. of the podcast. And that is something, particularly with New and Tasty, that, held up to the remake slash remaster, whatever you wish to call it these days. And when they tried it with flashback, they somehow lost the soul of the game by adding in elements that weren't traditional. The free aim, the terrible voice acting, um, the lack of an iconic score, a visual style that was sort of off the shelf rather than a piece of art. There's any number of elements that we could pick apart from the 2013 element if you listen to uh, Paul Cusset talk about uh, the remake before its release, it was very clear, I think, that he wanted to redo the game, not for uh, old fans, but he wanted to capture a new audience uh, with, uh, with Flashback. It's almost heartbreaking to say this, but I think he was quite misguided in his, uh, in his attempts mm. to modernize, modernize the game. <laughs> Euphemistically, it wasn't, uh, the, the changes weren't for the better. No, it's a shame, isn't it? Because I can understand you want to bring in a new audience. You want to make it more approachable. Because it is something that we, we're discussing right now, right? how some people might find it hard to get the grips with the controls right now. Would a game that looks, to all intents and purposes, very like something like Shadow Complex or like Bionic Commando Rearmed, yeah. and it doesn't look that... Di- it doesn't stand out visually. Now, you put the 1992 flashback up against it, and that stands out a mile. So seeing that original style redone in a similar way to how we saw the Another World release, running 1080p, super smooth at 60 frames a second, Mm -hmm. but with a more uh, user-friendly aiming system if you did want this Mm -hmm. free aim, you know, the the ability to aim anywhere, which for me personally detracted from the 
the the skill and uh, strategy that you would implement in getting enemies on on that height and getting the space to take to make that attack rather than just standing on a ledge above and shooting down below. I mean, it, 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 again, something very akin to Shadow Complex that 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 did betrays the core design principles of the original game. And- yeah. It it absolutely does, and and these are the things that are most important. And it's was he misled? Was he misunderstood? Did he just make an idea? Or and this is where it gets painful. Was flashback lightning in a bottle that he failed to yeah. capture? Because he let's not forget after he did go on to do Amy yeah. before <laughs> right. the twenty thirteen, and that was I that was he, his big comeback. Like, I think he uh, yeah, and that was I awful. think after flashback he uh, directed uh, Shaq Fu as well. Shaq Fu. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean that that was that was Delphine. Did uh, Shaq? Uh, do you know? We're getting the sequel. In, in, in all honesty, we shouldn't last. But Shaq Fu wasn't as bad as. Sure, of course. It, I agree. it was bad. It was better. It was better than Pit Fighter. Well, you, there's there's a low bar for it. I think it was a, a very well crafted bad game. <laughs> yeah, Shaq Fu. It, yeah. It, that's that's the sales point on yeah. the <laughs> better 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 than Pit Fighter. Nuts magazine. <laughs> like yeah. for, for what it is, Shaq Fu has a lot of attention uh, and, 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 and love and, and detail crafted onto it. It's just, you know, yeah. it doesn't work. And there's a lot of Shaq. We all love Shaq as well, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's one of these things that the more you look on, and I mean, you can't discredit the man for having done what he has in the industry and being the influence that he has, uh, not just amongst the games that he's done, but the people who have worked under him mm-hmm. and, and, and that because it's very disrespectful to any designer involved in the game industry if you write them off, regardless of who they are. Yeah. Those who are long-time listeners to this podcast probably know who I'm alluding to, um, who also may share the same nationality. Um, he is <laughs> also, when you work under the, those kinds of people, you learn yeah. stuff. You know, the, these are the kind of people that you learn from. So we can't disrespect them or d- discredit them from the things that they've done, but it looks like Flashback was the sort of lightning in the bottle moment. Mm. Oh, that, it was definitely his, uh, it's definitely, if you look at his resume, it's uh, his standout title. But he's made uh, solid games before that. And even a few solid games after that, he did those motor racing uh, yeah. motor race uh, ones uh, games as well, which... Effect. Are pretty, you know. They were they they got some good critiques and uh, yeah. yeah, they were well they were, they were for, games, for at least at the period in time. Uns- yeah. I would say they were unspectacular, successful if unspectacular, yeah. Yeah. but they play really nicely though. Yeah, they, I mean, lots of fun. Um, as many games were, but with big rigs and we had we had a lot of those sort of crazy off road. Obviously, this was time trial bikes style, um, and and all well and good, and and in that category worked perfectly but are they the games to be heralded after 25 years like flashback right. is yeah. I just no uh, something disastrous must have happened with vector cell because like it's not like flashback the remake in 2013 is like just not a very good game it's like a legitimately really bad game like from every aspect like it's really buggy it looks very poor and plays poorly like it's just like and it's based on such a like revered classic like i i don't don't know exactly what happened but something something must have went wrong somewhere and it's pure speculation it's that whole lost in translation sort of thing isn't it every single piece of it is 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 wrong like and you would think (laughs) like they bring in the guy in who who made it like it's his baby and and uh, it's just it's a really baffling thing to me 
I can only assume it really hurt him personally, though, that, that to see that game go down like that. Yeah, when, sure. Yeah. You know, flashback's got to be so important to him, and, and rightly so. I mean, flashback yeah. is an all-time classic, if not, you might not even like the way it plays, but its influence um, or as, as a point in the history yeah. of gaming sure. for, for its visuals and audio and, and the, the likes. Uh, you, you can't discredit that at all. They're, they are right up there. Um, and it's one of the great Amiga games and, and, and one of the great Mega Drive games, mm-hmm. in fact. Mm-hmm. Is there a chance it was um, designed by committee in that kind of Ubisoft 2013 way that there's land a, yeah. this just seems to sort of be um, sort of baked mm-hmm. in almost as a... Yeah, yeah. I, think I mean, there's concept. definitely stuff like there's like a whole leveling mm-hmm. system right, that, yeah. you know, was not in, in the game at all, but they've just arbitrarily added one in. Um, voice acting, which is just the worst. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm sure people have seen yeah. the awesome sauce clip. Like that's just such an embarrassing moment uh, for voice well, acting. I mean, when you when you hire a voice actor who can't say it, exactly, it's, it's yeah, incredible. Like he clearly, can't say awesome sauce. They're not reading it correctly at all. They, they're actually thinking that there is sauce in front of them, awesome and that that sauce, sauce is awesome sauce. Yeah, but, but you, <laughs> he you even say- makes a noise like he tastes it. He goes like, hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh my god! What are you doing? So you say that though, but uh, I I read the man the game's manual uh, before uh, before the recording, and it actually describes a whole a lot of the plot uh, before the game happens. And Conrad is quoted uh, in the manual saying, "If I don't get out of here fast, I'll be a hamburger." So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, but, it does that kind of. But it, it's it's uh, reserved for the manual. Not it doesn't appear in the actual game, thankfully. Right, sure. <laughs> he was almost yeah. a jibble sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the home planet of the morphs. So what did we make of that? It's an odd one. It, mm. It's never my most visually appealing style. That bio organic biomechanical sort. Yeah. Of style and it's all a matter of personal taste and if i'm going to play any game that looks like that it would be super metroid anyway but um <laughs> or even axiom verge but visuals aside which is where it sort of stepped down from me and the, the visuals are such an important mm-hmm. part of that experience mm-hmm. it was an okay wrap up to the game sure. it was... it's a bit anticlimactic to my to my mind it's not a little mm-hmm. bit yeah. 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 maybe they yeah. just had loads of green and purple left and needed to use another last <laughs> level somehow <laughs> Yeah, uh, we've paid for the license of purple. Use <laughs> and it. That neat little animation of the aliens, like I don't know what you would even call that, like rolling around, basically. Yeah, that's they're new goop. there. But. They're like uh, they they changed to uh, to goop form and uh, yeah, sort of, like uh, little blobs or something. Blob around, yeah, and then and then turn up. I thought the aliens themselves were pretty cool, actually. Yeah, we've seen that type of bio biological yeah. uh, setting in video games up until that point quite a bit already in the likes of Metroid, like you mentioned, yeah. and R-Type had, uh, had a whole yep. bunch of that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. And frankly, those ga- games were did it a little bit better and uh, more made more of a lasting impression in that aspect, I think. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it wasn't that um, impressive to see, see this, uh, this planet, so... Yeah, it wasn't bad, but certainly uh, the least impressive part of the game. When you step away from Mega City Earth, which looked so stunning, yeah. mm-hmm. so visually appealing, and and a Death Tower, and and then these things, this one, it felt, it did fall a little flat for me. And and as Dan said, it it, it is a little anticlimactic, which is a shame because it builds this whole story. I mean, Michael, you mentioned it there, and I was going to mention it closer to the end, which was the story build up actually in the manual which was always quite interesting it goes to show you that the, the story was such a key part of that game um and for it to all to build up to this last level which it's not bad no. 
Sure. But it, yeah. it doesn't feel special um, like the six before it do for various different reasons. I think it, uh, think it needs to go where it needs to go. It makes sense that he's, he'll destroy the, uh, the alien menace on their home planet and set it to self-destruct and then es- escape. Really, Mikhail, will he destroy it? Yeah, well, <laughs> not, uh, if, if we look at it, at this game as an isolated piece, yeah. But... Uh, I mean, it could it could have Listen, been it could have been uh, executed with a little bit more pizzazz. You you get to the end and you have this fight against the mega brain. It's sort of standard fare almost in gaming. Like that doesn't stand out as a boss. Yeah. I feel like I've experienced that several times. If you know what I mean. Sure, I did it in Gradius and in Metroid. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, and then you you sort of finish it and you go into stasis Ripley style um, from Alien. Right. And three years later, you were awake to a 3D monstrosity called Fade to Black, I guess, Um, (laughs) which we'll discuss on a later episode. Uh, Actually, I'm being a little harsh on that game. Um, Am I? I don't know. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm not. I've I've actually never played it much to mind. It had it had pros and cons. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It had some it had some redeeming qualities. Obviously, we went into the era of Resident Evil and Tomb Raider, and and it sort of got left behind and. But I mean, we'll we'll discuss this in depth if we ever do cover Fade to Black uh, in a, in a future episode, um, and it'll be one that I'm almost certainly pushing to be on <laughs> um, if it if it is. But yeah, it, it sort of it's pretty standard science fiction fare going into stasis to travel back home, and and it's a, it's a nice way to end the game. Yeah, I think maybe thinking about it now, maybe that's the reason why back in the days I didn't hold the game in such a high esteem that I do now. Uh, maybe it was that sort of less anticlimactic level that sort of cooled me down on it a bit and just made me think, oh, it's just a, a, an excellent game like many other 16-bit titles. I would certainly say it's the worst level to play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I, I mentioned the second one, but that's purely on length. It's a very, very good level. Um, it's just the length puts me off sure. in terms of having to play a level for fun. This is the one I would enjoy the least uh, for design reasons. But, you know... It it it's suitable, I guess, uh, if unspectacular, yeah. and mm-hmm. it's certainly, in my opinion, a little underwhelming as as Conrad goes into stasis. Yeah, so the music has a very uh, John Carpenter like synth quality to it, doesn't it? Yeah, it's um, I'm a huge uh, John Carpenter science fiction fan. Uh, in my opinion, he did you know one of the greatest in in the thing, and and it's the on and off style that. I appreciate yeah. so much the, the the huge amounts of silence you get mm-hmm. accentuate the music when it comes in. You know that's you know that something's up when the music starts playing. Right, yeah. That's it and it's so much more impactful as it as a result of it and it's it's strange that the sort of the Sega CD version had a consi- constant music playing over the top. I feel like a lot of my experience of enjoying it with the the silence um, and the intensity that silence brings when playing something yeah. is lost. And it doesn't work on uh, on uh, every game, of course, but it works really well in the case of flashback. And think about mm. uh, think about how you would if you would enter a screen and the music would uh, play constantly, like in the in the Sega CD version. Think of how underwhelming an appearance of an enemy in a certain place would be. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it's oh, it's just yeah. another enemy. Yeah. But now, when you exactly. enter a new screen, you don't know what's going to come up when the screen fades to black, haha, and fades out again, and you see the, the next screen, <laughs> and you, you know, you see an enemy all of a sudden standing there, guard uh, as a guard post for a lot, one of the mutants in the first level, and you hear the music starting, and you know, 
you know, oh, the, the threat level of the enemy is immediately raised. Like, you know, you need sure. to be careful right. now. I always feel like science fiction benefits from silence. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe more than other genres. Are. Blade Runner is always the one that I find is that, that always comes to mind because we have the loud sound effects that play the part of the music in a lot of cases in that film. And then, you know, you'd get to the feed and it's like, dugga, 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 <laughs> with the music building up in, in it. And as a result, those moments feel so much more impactful because you know that that's when all attention should be sort of paid Mm. as opposed to something that just has music constantly over the top none of it feels spectacular and we've we've covered a fair share of games on Caden Rince that have had a soundtrack and when it comes to talking about it you're a bit nonplussed at where (laughs) to start because it's just there It, it it's it becomes almost filler, yeah. whereas with something like Flashback, that I mean, and and a CD was actually released. It was a two disc CD based on music on Flashback, mm-hmm. so it was certainly relevant and influential in that regard. When it did come in, it it felt more important to the scene, and and that's something I definitely appreciated playing through it. There's quite a lot of ambient sound design as well that would get lost. Like I'm just thinking. Just trying to yeah. think of moments in the game, like the beginning in the jungle with the sort of like chirruping and like yeah. little yeah. little things yeah. going off here and there. That would be entirely lost, I, I imagine, with a yeah, with music yeah. over the Absolutely. top. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, that's it. Again, to talk Blade Runner, you're talking about the sounds of the spinners going overhead, sure. the sound yeah. of the uh, the TV advertising board yeah. with the geisha on it, all those little sound effects that you wouldn't hear, like the noodle bar in, in Blade Runner where there's the little um, conversations going on in the background mm-hmm. and the the clanging of the forks and stuff against the balls. These are the stuff that's lost if music plays over the top, and it's very subtle, but it grounds you in the location that you're in as well. And, you know, as Dan mentioned, the jungle is a perfect example because the sounds there that ground you in the jungle that you wouldn't hear with mm-hmm. music, and therefore you're only visually getting that you're in a jungle. Yeah, you hear, you hear these strange sounds that uh, immediately make it clear to you that, you know, these are not... Uh, animal sounds you're used to so you're, you're not you're not on earth you're on a yeah. strange planet and like you said there are so many other little sound effects that uh, play out when the music is not playing like the the fans in the in the underground city of new washington um even even uh lights that uh, flicker on and off in a nightclub and it stands out for the time too i can't think of many other games from that generation or really even now that like that will be bold enough to be quiet Brave. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've read many documents in the past on on the key elements of design, and this is from anything, so website design, audio design, games design, and the the most important aspect, time and time again, is restraint. Yeah, Mm. absolutely. So not putting everything into something. So in placing a restraint on the audio was very bold to do it, but it pays off because you reap the rewards when it comes in. So not throwing everything at a game, which is something we do see still quite a lot of now, is that a game can have everything and then not feel special at any of them. And you can credit it for saying it does this and this and this, but none of them stand out. Um, So having the restraint definitely helps. It really exhibits such a strong directorial or or vision of uh, game design. Mm -hmm. It's it's really quite incredible when you think about it. And it is—it's one thing that did translate over into the new 
the remake is that they did kind of keep some of that silence in there but when when the music kicks in like in the original it's very subdued it's just it can even be like maybe four notes like that yeah. that one kind of creepy noirish kind of music but in the in the remake there's like a whole horn section going off like whenever an enemy comes by like dun, 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 like, like the star it's wars like, sounding it's like the band com- the band comes out to play <laughs> <laughs> yeah. if this this was released in 2013 right so it must have been dubstep yeah. That must have been just the score. Just bring the dust. Yeah, there's a web somewhere, aren't there? Yeah, I'm sure there is. I yeah. couldn't get through the whole thing to find out for you. But. <laughs> wow. Right, so, so we have some feedback from the community um, just to wrap up towards the end of the show. And um, We have a piece here from the always excellent and consistent Alex79UK, so thanks again. He said, Flashback is a special game to me. I would have been around 15 or 16 at the time I played it around a friend's house and I remember going and getting my own copy as soon as possible afterwards. The game symbolises the exact point where I realised that games were more than just toys to play with. First of all, it looked, and still does look, absolutely stunning. I think it's so heavily stylized that it's barely aged a day since release. The rotoscoped animation was the most realistic I'd ever seen. It really felt like you were directing Conrad, the protagonist, rather than a pixelated representation of who he was supposed to be. Running, jumping, rolling, pulling out the gun, it all felt so fluid. The game hooked me in before it even started, though. The soundtrack is amazing, and because it's not being constantly played in the background as you play through the game, it can be used to wonderful dramatic effect. Slowly building as the action unfolds, the odd synthesised stab here and there to punctuate certain story beats. All brilliant stuff. The sound effects are ingrained into my brain for good now too. The click of the sensors, the grunts of the monsters, the whoosh of the lifts, the shots of the gun, I love them all. The gameplay itself isn't a million miles away from the Metroid slash Castlevania format. Find A to open B, progress. But the game was something of a revelation to me. In particular the level which sees you undertake various jobs to earn cash. Deliver a package, clear out this section of enemies, it felt like an RPG at a point when I'd never really played one before and using the subway trains to travel between different areas was again something I'd never encountered in a game. So when I say it felt more than just a game, it's because I really felt like when I played it, I was Conrad. It was me that had to expose these aliens living amongst the population, and it was me that they were after, trying to silence for good. There is so much to talk about in this game, but I've gone on long enough. I haven't mentioned the Running Man-inspired game show where you take part to win passage back to Earth, or how amazingly... Alien the Alien's homeworld looks in the last level, or how deep the combat could be with the shield and rolling, etc. I could talk about how much I adore this game all day, but just go and play it. I played it again last year, and it's not even a question of does it hold up to today's standards. It does, a million times over. It really does. It's a truly brilliant game. Oh, and one thing, as for ports, etc., I tried the short-lived iOS version, which handles as you'd expect on a touchscreen. Not good. There was an interesting version on the Game Boy Advance many years ago, but I believe it wasn't just a straight port, but something slightly different. I played a ROM of it ages ago and I can't really remember. I just remember it being very colourful. As for the more recent reboot, no thanks. The Sega Mega Drive version is definitive as far as I am concerned. So yeah, there was a Game Boy Advance ROM. It was never actually released. It's a strange sort of... (laughs) brightly colourful flashback with the same looking Conrad in it. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got two very different art styles which don't quite match The thinking up. is it's a placeholder um, main sprite, is that right? That's what... Yeah, yeah it, it's most likely that they just hadn't rotoscoped his animation again or whether they were going to do a different kind of animation or what, but it's um, it definitely doesn't quite look right. And it, 
it does look almost complete, though. That's the thing. You, you do see, if, if you watch it, there's quite a bit of gameplay in there for you to do. And maybe it didn't feel like it lived up to the flashback franchise at the time, which is kind of crazy given the 2013 release later on. But it's a sort of a strange thing to go and watch a, a, a nice little chachki of the, of the flashback franchise. Um, the iOS version, uh, as you'd expect from a touchscreen, it looked incredibly awkward to control. I never played it. I just moved. Uh, I was. I didn't have an iOS device at the time, and by the time I did, it wasn't available anymore. So I never really got a chance to play it. But I've seen footage of it, and to be honest, it looks like it's really just not worth the frustration you're going to get from it. So we have another piece of feedback from Ventus, who said, "I'm a recent convert to the podcast, and I've signed up to the forums, especially for Flashback. This game is the reason that I'm a gamer." I was born in the late 80s, and my first gaming memories involved the Mega Drive. I remember getting the console along with Sonic 1 and that awesome triple pack that had Columns, Super Hang-On, and Italia 90 on it for Christmas and loving it. Both games had that fun pick-up-and-play factor that many 16-bit titles were famous for, and the Mega Drive became a way for me and my brothers to mess about and beat each other's high scores. I remember seeing my oldest brother and his friend playing Flashback and immediately being drawn in. This wasn't anything I'd seen from a game before, and it was a step up. The game looked gorgeous, it had great music and sound effects. I still often find that bass line popping into my head at random moments <laughs> and had an ambitious story that spanned many locations and many planets. I don't know how, but Flashback ended up being left at hours overnight and I remember playing it relentlessly, though not getting too far before we had to unwillingly give it back to my brother's mate. From then on, Flashback was the only game I wanted and after getting it to completing it on the Mega Drive, I replayed it on the SNES bought a PC copy which never installed properly, an iPhone version which was later removed from sale, and in my uni days I managed to find a copy of it, along with a Mega Drive on a market stall which I snapped up. I still have it in the loft, and often mean to dust it off and play it, but never have the time. I'd love a remaster in a similar style to that Another World received, and not the awful one that was released in 2013. Don't mention Awesome Sauce to me, please. My strongest memories are of the jungle planet and jumping in that massive hole, the neon beauty of Death Tower and the fun that I had playing with the teleporter and the seemingly vast and bustling area of New Washington, with each station housing large areas to explore. I still have anxiety nightmares about the time I completed one of the jobs, got teleported back to the job centre and then ran out to use the elevator, the problem being that the elevator was still on the floor below, which meant that Conrad was sent falling to his death and me holding my head in my hands. I would have killed for an autosave in 1992. Nice. <laughs> Beautiful story. Yeah. Thank you so much for signing up to the forums as well. Um, it's, it's always great to get feedback and uh, correspondence for the episodes and when you see a game like Flashback and that pushes you to sign up, it is definitely appreciated. So we have a bunch of three-word reviews. In fact, we have a lot of three-word reviews for you on this episode. Now, the amount of retro games we've done in the past, and we struggle to get any. Um, in fact, there are times when we I don't believe we've had a single three-word review. Um, and yet on this one, we've got loads of uh, three-word reviews and a lot of excellent correspondence. So again, I can't thank you enough for that. We will start with Mikel on the three-word reviews. Alex79UK says, Timeless, beautiful excellence. Ventus says, Betsy, Studio, Inkbin. You should add that he said that they were formerly found in the notes section of the magazine. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Diver says, The Running Man, which I like the sort of double meanings there. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> nice. Sound of Player guest uh, and regular contributor Ruben Cornell said, Flash, hard. <laughs> <laughs> Nathan Drew, it says, Beautiful, fluid animation. The Tiege says, 
Heart-pounding adventure. Ash Malkin says pistol-whipping perfection. Gareth Cutliffe said hard as nails. James McCall, lovely, lovely memories. Matthew J, era-defining classic. The King Rocker gives us rotoscoped rock throw. Anthony Richardson, so, so beautiful. PG Generation says remake was buggy. And Andrew Oakes says rotoscoped to perfection. Nice. Also, just so the Tej doesn't think his joke was, um, what's the word, misplaced in being audio, he spelled heart, H-A-R-T, as in Conrad. Yeah. See what he did there? Yeah. He's hey. Con- yeah. Con- Very nice. Conrad getting pounded. <laughs> 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 that only leaves us to wrap up with our own summaries. First up, Sean. To say whether I can recommend this version of Flashback to anyone who hasn't played it before. Like, I don't know if I'm too nostalgic for this because, as I said at the beginning of the issue, it's like I played it so many times when I was younger and it's just it's just lodged in my memory now. And I, I, I can't tell if, if it's actually like a fully, just a, a, a legitimately excellent game or if I just, I love it so much. And so I, I would recommend it to people. Um, please, God, don't ever play the remake. Like, I know it's the easiest one to find. And there's a version of Flashback in it, which is still bad because it doesn't have any of the music. Like, how mm. did they get that wrong too? Uh, whatever. Anyway, don't play that version. Yeah, yeah, I think I would recommend it. Uh, most people give it a shot. It's 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 still really nice looking game. And, and like we mentioned, you know, the, some of the the music and the action can still be pretty fun. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a really good time. So definitely worth checking out. Michael? I would definitely recommend people coming, uh, going back to it, especially if they're a weirdo like me, uh, in the sense that I enjoy arcane control schemes, trying to figure them out and trying to make them work. <laughs> <laughs> so if you, no, if you, if you uh, don't shy away from uh, yeah, a different set of controls than you might be used to and uh, don't mind trying to get into it, I'll def- I definitely recommend Flashback. In fact, it's kind of telling that I almost didn't feel the need to replay this game for the show despite not being as impressed with it as I'm now after having replayed it, because despite that it was still etched so fresh into my memory, every every level and uh, all the things you do with it and the scenery and the, and the settings. And that's, you know, very rare for, uh, for a game uh, to be kind of mapped out in your mind uh, when the, the last time you played it was probably 1994 or 1995. And I've come back... For, from replaying it, uh, the Mega Drive version uh, that is feeling much more in awe of it, and I, I, in fact, I think it's a, it's a near timeless classic uh, from from where I stand. I knew the game had a had a brilliant uh, atmosphere and and setting and a br- brilliant art style to it. If you compare it with Another World, which is a more artsy game uh, from an audiovisual point of view, uses a more chunky and suggestive art style where you, uh, f- uh, you're you asked to fill out, fill out a lot more blanks by yourself. Characters look very, very chunky and uh, there aren't that many colors. Flashback juxtaposed has a little bit more of a, a crafted artistry to it. Uh, there's uh, more detail that went into it. 
the art style is is a success, and uh, the way uh, it handles uh, it handles narrative. What sealed the deal for me, thinking of as highly of it as I do now, is that I just enjoyed how well designed every almost every single screen of the game is, and how much fun it is to overcome the challenges laid out for you. And in that sense, I had a lot more fun replaying it than I thought I was uh, was going to have. Since uh, when I played it back in the days, I didn't feel the need to replay it at any given time. I, it was just one and done. It stayed in my in my memories, but I never felt the, the need to, re- to replay it. But I actually had a lot more fun just dealing with the play mechanics and the, 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 the challenges laid out for me. And yeah, in that sense, I think really think as to to repeat myself i really think it's a timeless classic so play flashback See, this is strange because when i started discussing this on this very episode i said that i don't necessarily think i could recommend it to new players but yeah i want everyone to have played flashback <laughs> and <laughs> part of me stems when we when we look at alex 79 uk's correspondence and he's so enthusiastic about it saying you know just play it just play it and that's how i feel Mm. but I'm aware that people may not enjoy it. And I, if I was playing it next to someone who was enjoying it for the first time, I'd be that person that's being creepy, just staring at the person, waiting for them to <laughs> smile, seeing how they react to everything and wanting them to love it like I love it. Um, and it, it's a strange position to be in because at the same time, I'm aware that these aren't the controls for everyone. These, This isn't the style of game that people can just pick up and play for 10 minutes and jump off like they can with so many other things now. There is no quick save. It can be brutally difficult at times and the controls can be confusing. And in spite of all that, it's hard to deny the brilliance of so many parts of this game. I mean, the music is wonderful because of the way it's directed. The art, however, is masterful in every element of it it is a complete masterpiece it's the kind of thing that i would flick through a coffee table of double spread screenshots from start to finish and love it's just special in a way that you don't see that often anymore because there's that feeling that there was a passion put into every single screen every screen had to pop or stand out in some way be distinctive be unique um, and it's the same th- elements that I loved so much about Another World, and I've carried those as my avatar or um, Twitter header for as long as I can remember, and probably forever will be, because there's just nothing like it. And whilst I would say it maybe hasn't influenced as many games afterwards because of the change from 2D to 3D and the, just the way that things went, perhaps Matthew J is right when he says it was an era-defining classic because for this style of game, there was only really Abe's Odyssey that came afterward. And personally, I'm not that much of a fan of that game, uh, which people often find hard to mm-hmm. believe. So for me, this maybe was the era-defining classic because it couldn't be bettered and things changed. And for that, it will be the one that I herald as a work of art, despite being maybe... a terribly frustrating to play so i'm aware of its limitations in spite of that i love this game and i want everyone to love this game and maybe i'm more forgiving because i've already experienced the frustrations than if i was coming to it new but yeah 
in the hope that someone would find the passion in it that so many of our listeners clearly have and how so many people involved in gaming um, who've played from the 80s, 70s, 80s and 90s throughout can point to any picture of it and go, that's flashback. Unquestionably, that screenshot is from flashback. That is magic. That's when you know that you have captured something truly special. The, the, the Some essence that, that games strive for, flashback has. And for that, I would absolutely recommend that people have to experience it. And the last summary, I'll hand over to our excellent guest, Dan. What are your thoughts? Um, oh, I've got a random grab bag of thoughts. Um, <laughs> see, I was going to say at some point when we were talking about the colour, oh, well, I've always had a soft, soft spot for the combination of green and purple. But then I was wondering, I wonder if I actually did before I played this game or whether this game is what kind of showed me that those two colours, colours in combination can sort of light up a screen almost. So, um, so yeah, I, th- I think it's actually led to me having my favourite combination of colours, which is a, a nice sort of turnabout. Um, it harks back to me when, uh, you'll remember this, Carl, when games could be described by magazines as being French games, and it didn't just allude yes. to the country they were from. It was a meaningful description as to <laughs> something uh, something almost tangible. I can't quite put my finger on it, but a, a sort of artistic sensibility and um, a, a depth of sorts that... Um, there were yeah pe- games were described as french games and this is the uh, the archetypal quotes french game to me so mm. um yeah i love that i agree with alex 79 uk that there is an rpg feel to it as well i think i'd only played fantasy star on the master system at this point so that was my only reference point but yeah the idea of getting jobs and feeling like you are in this sort of larger world than it really is i mean i've always wondered how many screens is this game we're only just coming out of the era at that point where games were counted <laughs> yeah. in terms of the number of screens that there were within it um and i think the density of those screens um is part of the smoke and mirrors that i totally fell for i'd sort of go through the city thinking well imagine the jobs i didn't get imagine the <laughs> other ways i could yeah. have made that money mm. and i know perfectly well that there are no ways of doing that it's it's as linear as they come but it, um, it led me to believe that there was this greater world going on in the background. As testament to how I felt about it at the time, uh, I think we've spoken about the, the time where people record soundtracks from the SNES or the Mega Drive onto cassettes. Um, this I actually plugged into a TV, uh, the video, the VCR, to record the intro and the ending onto VHS. I mean, I could have used the code at any time, but I wanted like a, a VHS copy of what I felt was the sort of film of my uh, my Mega Drive gaming generation. Also, for people that say that it hasn't had mm. a, an impact gameplay-wise, um, I'd say the rolling and shooting, uh, people need to play Gears of War multiplayer, and uh, I think maybe that's almost a flashback in 3D form. <laughs> now, but not necessarily in gameplay terms, but presentation-wise, and in terms of the scale of the story, I think it was a glimpse into the future, um, a flash forward, if you will. Fantastic. Thank you very much for that. So with that, I will thank Sean, Michael, and Dan. Thanks for joining me. And next time, in issue 269, we delve into Datadyne as we dive deep into Rare's N64 classic, Perfect Park.
Thank you.